Hi, everybody. I have some exciting news. I am launching a Substack. I know. I keep telling you how I'm not a writer, and I'm still not a writer, but I am going to be writing about reading over on Substack. The Substack is called Unstacked, and you can find it at tracythomas.substack.com. There will be free options every Friday. There'll be a bunch of weekly roundups, announcements, all the shit I'm into. And then if you want to upgrade yourself to the paid subscription, I'm going to have author interviews, bonus episodes, anticipated reads, book pairings, community chats, all sorts of stuff. So, If that sounds like something you'd be into, go to tracythomas.substack.com and join Unstacked. And of course, I've got a special offer for you. If you go to tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10, you get 10% off your first year membership of Unstacked. You have from now until April 4th to redeem. Again, that's tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10 for 10% off Unstacked. Okay, that's enough. Let's listen to this episode. Welcome to The Stacks, a podcast about books and the people who read them. I'm your host, Tracy Thomas, and our guest today is author, activist, and now podcast host, Darnell Moore. We talk about Darnell's wonderful memoir, No Ashes in the Fire, his new podcast, Being Seen, and of course, his taste in books. Darnell will also be our guest on December 30th to discuss Citizen, an American Lyric by Claudia Rankin for the Stacks Book Club. Thank you so much to the Stacks Pack, the folks who show this podcast love over on Patreon. They contribute to the show monthly and earn perks like discounts on our merch, access to our virtual book club, and more. I could not make this show without you. If you want to join this community of bookish people, head to patreon.com slash the Stacks. This week, I'm saying a special thank you to the newest members of the Stacks Pack, Bianca Rivera, Anne Lichty, Allison Punch, Claire Flores, Karen, Anastasia Ware, Meredith Wilkinson, and Heather Miller. Thank you all so much, and thank you to the entire Stacks Pack. Okay, it's on to my conversation with Darnell Moore. All right, everybody. I'm so excited. I am here today with author and activist and all around just exciting human podcaster now, uh, Darnell Moore. Darnell, welcome to the Stacks. I'm so excited to be in conversation with you. I'm fan. I'm fanning out right now. Oh my God. I'm fanning out right now. This is going to be a love fest. (laughs) It's just going to be me giggling and being like, I'm so excited. I'm so excited. (laughs) Um, Okay. We always sort of start here, which is, can you just kind of tell us about yourself? I've just given an intro that you have not heard, but it'll be like your resume. But like, tell us about you that's not, you know, like, I wrote this thing or I did that. Like, give us a little background. Yes. So I am, I am a child of Camden, New Jersey. Camden is in South Jersey across from Philadelphia. Um, I was born there in a time during which um, Camden was talked about within the media space, within the sort of social sciences space, even, Um, you know, as a city that was sort of bereft of of goodness and virtue. Um, it, it made many lists, um, you know, being named one of the most economically devastated cities in the country um, along like the along the lines of like Gary, Indiana. Right. Um, it was talked about as one of the most violent places 
in the country. Um, and I was quite aware of those designations as a young Aquarius, inquisitive, <laughs> nerdy little boy growing up in Camden who read the newspaper and paid attention to how people talked about the city that I called home um, in the world. Uh, it is really important for me to name the, that my family really demonstrated radical Black love and, and helped me to understand and find true meaning and community. Um, and that was a buffer. It isolated me from all of those negative arrows that were being shot from media because mm -hmm. as much as I knew it, Camden was like, shit, it was like an amazing place to be um, because my family in the home was so full of love. I was fortunate, <laughs> even though um, as a child, I looked back and I'm like, I don't know how we did it. But, you know, my grandparents had eight kids and my mom was the second oldest and she had me at 16, which means that I was born enough to see my aunts and uncles growing up themselves as kids. My mom was a teenager. Um, so I had the benefit of being like the, the ninth child growing up in a home full of people. It was a three-bedroom home with a basement. We were living in line all over the place. But it was like, you know, it was it was love. Yeah. It yeah. was love. And I just, so I, that is that is who I am. I mean, it is very much at the heart of the work that I do as an artist, um, as a person who's done organizing in the world, as an educator, as a media maker, I, I'll end by saying, I, I always say this about my family, the house was full because whenever somebody came knocking on the door in need of a place to stay, and whether that meant I had to get on the floor and they took over the couch, or there were three people in one bed, um, I come from a family that never, ever shut the door or left the door shut on people, and they taught me about what it means to not dispose of our own. And as Black folk um, who know something about disposability in a world that is easily, easily ready to dispose of us, um, I, was, I learned a value of what it means to love radically. And that carried uh, into my work and into the organizing work that I've done. It's just the way I live my life. Um, yeah. So I'm a child of Diane, Diane, Diane Chisholm. Black girl who had me at 16, who is the most amazing mom, the son of a father who had me at 15, and who, in, in a time in which Reagan were calling people like my mama welfare queens, raised a child to love with big heart. Um, so that's who I am. I love, like, the greatest introduction to oneself I've ever heard. Um, we share being from a place that the media and the world likes to shit on. I'm from Oakland, California. So Shout out similar. To yeah. I mean, <laughs> I was raised in a very different way and, um, you know, not, not, not a similar upbringing, but a similar, um, experience of where you're from looking like one thing to the outside world and feeling like something very different to you as a child and also understanding or not understanding what that means or looks like. I think we probably both hearing you talk about Camden, I feel similarly, like I didn't really quite understand what everyone's fuss about Oakland was, <laughs> you know, like I got it, but I also didn't get it. You know, I'm going to, I, I'm going to skip, I have like all these notes and things I want to talk to you about, but you kind of gave me like a perfect in, which is your mom, um, in your, in your memoir, no ashes in the fire, which is just really, really beautiful. And, and we will talk about it more, but 
one of the things that stuck out to me, I listened to your memoir and your voice is perfect. And, but one of the moments in the book that just like gives me chills, like just thinking about it right now, it makes me emotional is you're coming out to your mother. And it's such, I mean, I'm like going to cry right now. Um, It is such a beautiful, beautiful story. And as the reader, we've come with you on your journey, right? We've, we've seen where you grew up. We've met your family. We've met your friends. We've kind of followed you as you've discovered your relationship and your sexual identity and all this stuff. And it's towards the end of the book. Um, And that moment is just like, it's, gives me chills. It's just so beautiful because it is that acceptance and that radical black love and that, that like all the things you just described about your upbringing, you can feel that in just the few sentences in that moment. And I just, ugh, I don't know. I just, it's just such a great part of your book. <laughs> Thank you. I, I loved writing that part. I loved writing it for a few reasons and just for context for those that have, haven't read it. Um, you know, part of what you feel as you as you're as you're journeying with me through the story is the weightiness, um, and weightiness that doesn't necess- that doesn't necessarily mean um, traumatic, but the weightiness of being of growing and coming of age as a black person who's coming into their queerness, into their queer magic, right? right? Um, in a very particular place, in a very particular part of you know time in the world under very particular circumstances. Um, but what was what is marvelous about it is um, there's there's something that the, that the world is supposed to think about a Black girl who had a child at 16 who drops out of high school um, and doesn't get her GED until her son, the son that she raises, goes out and gets three college right. degrees, right? There is a way you think, there is a way that we are taught to think about that particular type of black woman, right? Who who is actually in Camden, who is um working poor, right? right. Um we, we tend to think that this black woman should be non-progressive, um, lacking love, doesn't fucking get it, right? And then here comes my mom right. when I say to her, like, come meet me at my job. <laughs> I text her, like, meet me at my job. I need to talk to you. And I'm feeling heavy and I'm, I'm feeling nerves right. racking my body. I am scared to death. Um, considering the possibility that me sharing or inviting her in, which is what I like to say, right, would be a cause for her to leave. Right. She comes to my office and I sit before her and I'm, I have trepidation and I'm quiet. And she says, what's wrong? What's wrong? And it's clear to me that she's that she is also ready to share with me because she came to my she got there with the quickness, right? And I say, um, I don't know how to say this to you. And she's like, Well, what is it? Like, what's wrong? What's what's the problem? Like, are you sick? <sighs> and I say, No. And she's like, Well, you know, do you have cancer? And that was that was important for her to ask because my grandfather, who was like a father figure to me, had just passed from cancer. So I say, no. She said, well, is it like HIV? Is it AIDS? And I say, no. She's like, well, what is it? I said, I have a boyfriend. And she said, I knew that already. <laughs> <laughs> I knew that already. Like this, and I, let me be clear. This is a black woman, you know, and often there's this sort of societal idea that like black people, one, are somehow more homophobic than everybody else, right? Especially right. if you're from like the South or if you're from like the urban space. Right. Um, and if you're not like college educated and my mama, my black mama, who had at that point hadn't even had her GED, sat there and said, right after that, I know and I love you. You are my son. And she's like, and I actually knew this. I knew this for like me and your sister have been talking about this for a long time. 
<laughs> Wayne know how to bring it up. But that moment was, it was about that revelatory uh, moment for me that broke the, that, that, that removed the bricks that were on my back. Yes, for sure. But it was also an intervention. Yeah. And a met in a narrative that is functioning within our world that 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 refuses to acknowledge the love the grace the bountiful intelligence intelligences the the politics the progressivism that lies within the heart of some of our black mamas and papas and our uncles and aunties you know i come from a family before i knew what trans experience was i remember bringing home a friend who um, was trans when I was in high school. I didn't even have the words for it. Right. And you know, my family did. They never asked any questions. And they went to. They were in high school. Like my sisters were in school with with the person I'm thinking about, and they never skipped a beat. Hmm. You are you eat? Do you want food? Right. <laughs> when I took my mom with me, I, when I was working with at uh, Hetrick Institute with young, just the nation's largest and oldest LGBTQ youth servant organization. Um, I took our kids. My my colleague and I brought our young people to Philly for a trans conference. Um, my mama came to dinner with us. My mama don't got the language, but by the time we were done, we were finished dinner. Every all those kids, trans young kids, young people were like, I, "I want her to be my mama." Mm. So a big part of the the sort of narrative was about a te- like giving the testimony or this witness this sort of account of my own love experience, but it was also about pushing back against this narrative that says that our people um, are somehow less loving. Right. Than some others. What do you think it is about your family that allows them to be open and receptive? Like, do you think that there's something? Do you think that there's something you were taught as a child, or do you think that there's like some experience that like your grandma had or something like that? You go to Tracy, you're going to laugh. I mean, the first thing I would say is this is going to. Let me just apologize (laughs) to all of my faithful before I say this. But I come from, I'm going to be coy here, but I come from a family of sinners. I don't come from mm. a church family. And I do think that that has something, and I, why I say sinners, <laughs> I, I can say that as a, as a, as a, as a church, a, a recuperating, a, okay. a church boy, a recovering <laughs> church boy. What I mean by that is um, they, I, they were not, they didn't have all of these hangups, I, I don't think. Um, all of these ideas. Now, don't get me wrong. There were ideas that I think that were about uh, th- that they had about how we might show up in the world in such a way we can be protected as Black people who are in Camden in the working poor mm-hmm. space, right? In a world that is antagonistic to us. But you know, like I don't come from a family that was believing that, like, if you're queer or trans, you're going to hell, right? Like, I don't come from folk who are like. You know, you need to be married as a woman to have sex with men or to have children. Like the uh, most of my, uh, like I, the, my family's predominantly women, and most of the women in my family never got married. I mean, a fir- the first wedding was a big deal, <laughs> only because it was like you're the first, Ella, you're the first person to get married. We all we don't know nothing about that here. We're not trying to like we're not invested right, in like right. patriarchy in that way. Um, and I think that that's it. Like, I really do. And now as an, as an older person, I look back and I'm like, oh, that was it. Right. That was it. Like, you know, th- there was no having kids out of wet. You know, like that, you know, like when my mom had me, it had less to do with her having a kid without being married. I mean, my grandparents were, they had their own stuff that they had to um, maneuver through. They were upset at the fact that she was 16. 
Right. Right. Which is its own sort of respectable right. idea. You know, I, I get it. Um, but shit, by the time I was like walking, they were like, oh, that's our grand. Right. We love him. Right. Like, <laughs> so I think that has so much to do with it. Yeah, I, think it I like that. But they're just the judgment part isn't there. Like, it's like, who are we to judge? No. Like, no, because we like I come from like I tell like you can be knocking on my door after getting like knocking on my grandparents' door or my mama door or anybody door after you just got a like a stint mm-hmm. in jail or um coming from a substance abuse facility. You know what they would do? Right. Come on in. And that's how I right. grew up. Um so it means nothing for me. Like I didn't I don't know. I, I guess for my mom, she probably was almost like, Why did you not think? <laughs> She's like, Haven't we taught what? you? All, like, have you been paying attention? You know what I'm saying? We taught you this. Do you see how we do you see how we do? We don't we let we don't we don't kick people out. Are you there was we never had an instance where anyone's right. kicked out. Do of you house. feel like you're able to uphold that as an adult yourself now? Like do you feel like you're able to live in that legacy or do you struggle? It's a ground of my politics. It's the ground of my politics. So, like, as, uh, you know, like, if you read the book, people got upset with, there were some readers that could not deal with what they understood to be my two quick moves of giving grace. Um, so there are examples in the book where, you know, I talk about violences that have been mm-hmm. done to me, right? And what I don't end with is what I think people assume to be true in the context of the U.S., where retribution Mm. is the name of the game, right? Punishment. And I end a lot of this by trying to figure out and find a humanity in some of the people who had violated me. You know, like when I was a kid and there was a moment where I was attacked by some boys who were my neighbors um, and they harmed me. I mean, they tried to, li- they literally doused me with gasoline and tried right. to light a match. That's a horrific right. story. It's yes. a traumatic story. I'm not dismissing the horrific right. weight of that, but what I-, I could not see a justifiable end, a just end as that young person being placed in right. a jail. Like that just didn't seem like that's not how you grow. That's not how someone comes to a better place. What I saw is like, maybe there's something happening where his mama is saying, well, my mama and they got the kids together and they're talking about difference and they're talking about what was happening in him to cause those things to tri- like to cause my being to like trigger him. But jail was never the end. And there's a lot of readers for whom who read the book as a version of like cheap grace. But I, I, I think it's costly grace. I'm not trying to say that accountability is not a process through which folk who harm must go through and endure. No, no, no. It, you must. Accountability is a part of that. Any ending of harm is also a part of that. But I don't see the means through which we tend to solve problems within the U.S. context, particularly when it comes to Black people, that we are so easy to dispose of. I don't, I can't do, and I say this all the time, I can't do to to another what the system does to, right. to us. Um, so that's just, you know, it, it's easy, like for me to come into sort of an abolitionist mindset, if that was an easy jump for me to make coming from a family that let back in all the people that they, that, that the world said we should, didn't deserve love after the, you know, b- uncles who ain't pay child support bills ended up in jail. Daddy who was in and out of jail, but somehow still being demanded to stop his shit, still being demanded to stop the harm. And if you continue to harm, we're not letting you back in the house. But when my daddy died and my mom said, like, aren't you you're going to the funeral, right? And I'm like, right. how? How how are you even thinking about going to this man's funeral, right. woman? <laughs> right. You know right. what I mean? 
And she's like, well, that's your dad. And yeah, he did some fucked up. I'm sorry. I cuss all the time. All I do is swear. Please continue. He did some fucked up shit. Right. But he um, I also remember I can hold that with the good things, with the good parts of his humanity, too. And it was such a valuable lesson to me. So before I even understood abolitionism as sort of uh, Ruthie Wilson Gilmore or um, Angela Davis or Marion Cabo or um, all the all the amazing folk who had been talking about abolitionism um before i understood that as sort of a politic as a practice i had a family that modeled it really right wow have you um this just reminded me of one of my one of a book that i love which by the is- way i just got to pause y'all tracy got the most bangingest air like earphones on right now they're like they're, these are like astronaut this is on some <laughs> fucking mars they're the cheapest ones i could find on (laughs) amazon sorry when i first started this podcast and they still work and i love them um (laughs) they're everything um wait i was gonna tell have you read the reckonings by lacey m johnson her essay collection i've not gotten to it yet okay it's really really good it's a it's incredible and she was um I, people who listen to the show are going to be like, are you talking about this book again? You're so annoying. <laughs> but she was kidnapped and raped and almost murdered by her ex-boyfriend. And she wrote a memoir about it called The Other Side. And then during her book tour for The Other Side, people kept asking her, so like, what do you think should happen to the man who did this to you? What do you think, like, what do you want to see happen to him? What do you wish you could do to him? And basically it sparked her to be like, my answer is not what you want my answer to be. Like mm-hmm. I super don't have those feelings of like retribution or, you know, whatever that everyone else wants me to have, or like, I don't want to do violence back to him. Mm-hmm. And so she wrote an essay collection on justice and it starts kind of there, but there are essays about she's from Houston or lives in Houston. So she's got essays about um, the hur- hurricane Harvey and mm. what that means and what justice means, environmental justice. And she's mm. a white woman. So she has uh, essays about her whiteness and what that means. And she has essays about the death penalty and children who are living with uh, terminal cancer. And it, the essays are just so good. She's got a PhD in poetry. Like she's, you know, a professional yeah, writer. Yeah. 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 She's amazing. And I also, th- I think about Josie Duffy, um, who is yes. book is going to be on um, abolitionism in some sorts. And also, um, Marlon Peterson, whose book, um, a cage, uh, what is Marlon's book? A bird uncaged. Marlon, I'm messing up your book title. It's but okay, I'll put the right thing in the show notes. <laughs> but you know, <laughs> both of these people, both, both of these persons, um, Derek Purnell is also another person who's going to be working on a book on abolitionism. Are, I think, offering within literature. I think this is going to be an interesting turn. Yeah. Because here are books that are trying to reimagine justice within the context of a nation state um, that has bolstered itself off of punishment right. as a logic for how we solve problems. And I mean, you have like Angela Davis and Ruthie Wilson Gilmore and so many others who talk about what it like you cannot bring about freedom through violence or at least solving violence through violence. Right. right. Um, and I, I, I am looking forward to like literature that exposes us to narratives and stories um, that offers a texture of something very different than what we have felt before. And that is the immediate rush when you read harm is to respond with harm. 
Right. That's why, you know, people were so upset when they read, some of people, when they read the book, because they're like, I don't like what I feel. I am supposed to logically feel after reading that. Yeah. I need to feel, res- my anger needs to be resolved. And you are not resolving my anger. You just made me ang- more angry. Like, how right. the hell are you going to like, I mean, they would go <laughs> off, you know? Right, right. And that's part of what I wanted the book to be able to do. Um, yeah. I end up eulogizing my father after having lived a good number of years saying, I do not I don't not ever, I don't know what I would do if this man dies. I'm not going to the funeral. Now, I went through, a, a that was some transformative work. The, right. the writing of the book actually showed my father passed while I was writing the book, which oh, is wow. probably a large, a large reason why I, what you get for, as a reader, you're getting a narrative that's come, that has come through a sort of self-transformative process. Mm. Like I had to figure out how to write into the book, a character, my father, um, who I loved to hate. Um, and as a writer, I was thinking that it would be unfair to write him sort of monolithically or at least myopically right. without exploring the various manner in which he lived his life. So that's the only way I think it's, it was his death in the middle of my writing. Actually, I was like on chapter fucking three, like <laughs> of a book that has eight right. Like by the time I got to the end, I was just thinking very differently about how to, to, to sort of talk about um, the, in, the interior life that didn't cage him into just one way of being seen. Right. So that kind of is, leads me into my next question, which is when you're writing your memoir as a, you know, young person, you're not in your eighties, you know, like this isn't really an autobiography. (laughs) Like it's sort of this moment in time. How are you living your day-to-day life? Like, are you constantly thinking like, Oh, should I put this in? Like, are you constantly analyzing (laughs) everything that you're doing? And then you have this major life event that happens. Listen, (laughs) the real, real is like, Tracy can see me now. Like I kind of, I got, got the light on my skin. It's like glowing. (laughs) You You know, I got as always. Didn't look like this. I didn't. I was not looking like this. You know, it was. <laughs> <laughs> I was. I was tore up. Yeah. Um, I. I. I literally, as a process, I went for the first three months to write the first part of the book. I was in College Park in Atlanta, um, in a house by myself, and um, oh, it was. It was like, I felt like I was. I'm going to use trapped here, but that's probably the best word I can use. Like okay. trapped or, or forced to be with myself, with my demons, with, in the deep by demons, I mean, with memories, mm-hmm. with the, the feelings that came from remembering stories. Um, and I would get up every day and set out to like, I would give myself a, like, I'm like, if I was at work. Cause you know, capitalism, right? So it's yeah. like work shit. Right. So I'm like, I would be working an eight hour day with like an hour lunch. Right. So I'm going to sit here. Uh, if I get up, uh, if I, if I get to my desk at 10, I'm going to work eight hours through until whatever, like six, seven. Um, and I did that every day and I would sit there and um, the process was, I knew that uh, I, I didn't want this to sort of be a through book in that way. What I thought about were like, what are the seven, eight to 10 thematic lessons mm. are ideas that I want to get across. So each chapter is like one, it's, it's a, a one word title, like run home. Um, and so as I thought about, okay, here are the sort of eight to 10 things that I want the reader to at least gain as knowledges, as something. What then are the stories that occur throughout the sort of life that I lived up until now that can um, animate or bring to life those lessons. 
And some of those stories, you know, after I sort of started outlining, didn't jive. It just didn't fit. Some of those stories were things that I was not at that point ready to talk about in public um, because I had not dealt with them in private. That is to say, I wasn't ready, for example, to talk about um, the sexual assault I experienced. I didn't want to write about that in a book. If I was talking about reckoning, for me to talk about that honestly in a book would mean that I would have to go back to the person. Right that did the harm and do some reckoning there. And I was like, one, I'm not ready. I'm not in space to do that. Second, I don't know if I want to see that motherfucker. So that was like that, right? So then <laughs> um, that's how I got to the stories. And you know, I love how Kiese talks about memoir and differentiates between memoir and autobiography and that an autobiography, you're trying to sort of tell a story from like start to it, whatever particular endpoint is. Mm. Memoir, as you know, is a snapshot in time. It can be a snapshot of an hour. It can be a snapshot of a, of a day. It can be the snapshot of a fucking second. You somehow figure out through right. the art how to stretch right. out across a book. Um, and, I, and because of that, I felt less pressured to, to have a tell-all autobiography. Right. You know, I tried to, to share the things that I think would be most relevant for the reader to get to the point that I was trying to help them to journey to. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to shift a little bit. I have so many questions for you and I'm like <laughs> looking at the time and I'm like, holy shit, I'm not going to get to any of them. I'm glad that you're coming back. We're going to discuss citizen. I'm going to try to yes. parlay some of them in there. So, but I'm going to try to move on a little bit. I want to talk about your new podcast because you just launched a podcast like a month ago when people are listening, maybe two months ago. I don't know. Yes. <laughs> um, and it's called being seen and it's yeah. about black queer experience, male yeah. experience. Mm -hmm. um, you should probably tell people about it slightly better than what I just did because that was sort of whack <laughs> and it's really no. beautiful. And so tell people a little bit about it and then I'll come back and say some things about For it. Sure. Um, <laughs> so Being Seen is um, a podcast. Really, I, I like to call it a sonic, a sonic landscape. I know that sounds fancy, but that's as a, a media maker, I, I I worked as co-producers, Harley and Company, supported by Vive Healthcare. And I'll say a bit why that was important to me. Um, you know, look, disclaimer, Vive Healthcare is a pharmaceutical company that provides HIV medicines. Um, oh. So I'll, let me talk about the sort of inception of this. Like, so um, Vive is um, a, an HIV healthcare provider. They, they pretty much are... Um, one of the major companies that have provided healthcare and also community services to um, black men having sex with men, as they would label it, black, queer, gay, bi, however, identified men, trans men, um, and others who had been disproportionately impacted by HIV. I came to know Vive um, through the work of a lot of organizing friends, a lot of my queer um, family members who are doing amazing shit in the world, Kenyon Farrell, Dr. David Melbranch. Um, Emil Wilbekin, Lillian Rivera, folk who have worked in a long, um, in, in, for a long time in community with Black, queer, Latinx folk. And because of the relationship that these folk had with Vive, um, it was, that was a door for me to sort of work with them. I'm like, oh, if they're doing good by, by you all, then this is worth it. And they're not pharma and it, look, they're they, they provide pharmaceutical, but they do the work really in a community oriented way with Black people at the lead. So that's the sponsor. Um, and they had this idea of how can we begin to, and, and really Harley and Company, which is another group that worked with V before to, to produce a play that was written by, um, shaped around the life narratives of, co-produced alongside of Black gay men. 
um, from a variety of places, including the South. So they took and did um, these interviews with black gay men to talk about their lived experiences and turned that into a damn play called, um, I think, As Much As I Can, As Much As I Can. I'm always messing up titles, y'all forgive me. (laughs) Um, So Harley and company um, were meeting with some of their advisors, Emil Wilbekin, who was a former executive editor, if y'all remember him. He's a big thing in media, like Vibe Magazine, et cetera. He's just amazing. He's also a person who lives with HIV. Um, who's been adamant about getting our narratives out there. And they were like, maybe darn now we want to do this podcast and we want to do it differently. And we want it to be great. And we want it to like um, be centered on a black, gay, queer, male, masculine experience. Um, so they approached me and asked if I would be willing to do it. Um, and now here's a funny thing. Like I am not like, I'm, I don't really listen to a lot of podcasts <laughs> except like, <laughs> so I was like, I guess, you know, I'm yeah. a media maker. Right. Um, and I was so invested in this idea of creating within a podcast environment uh, a, a sort of sonic experience that for once celebrated, centered, lifted up, involved at every turn, um, Black, queer folk, particularly mal- masculine and mal-identified, in a time in which we know we fucking exist. Right. We are creating films. We are in Hollywood. We're on the streets and, in in, you know, sparking up movements. We are um, co-laboring to create policy. We're doing all this work. And still, in 2020, mm-hmm. in 2020, still invisibilized, whether that's in the world of literature. Like, there are people that would sooner call my book, like, an LGBT book before they name it as a Black book that right. is sort of part of, like, um, black American, black American literature. So it was any opportunity I have to center those who are pushed to the side. I'm all in. I'm yeah. all in. And then not only am I going to do that shit so we can center ourselves, we're going to do that shit with excellence. Yeah. So it is like, I mean, just for the listener, like the the music, the theme music is is by Moses Sumney. Um, all of the artwork that the, that the photography that accompanies, we have a photography that, that accompanies each episode right. that was curated by Giancarlo Valentin and Texas Isaiah um, themselves who like, like, it's by black folk. <laughs> the 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 artwork that sits on the cover art by black folk. Um, and that was so important because I think what we'll have now is an archive of these lived, these narrative. I mean, you got like Lee Daniels on there and uh, Michael R. Jackson, the first black gay man to win a Pulitzer for a play. And, you know, and I know like, him. You know, I love Michael. So you Michael I mean? went to NYU or to work, did NYU writing, musical theater writing, and I yes. choreographed his main stage musical when I was in college. See, y'all see what I'm saying? Look, you see, see these connections uh-huh. like these and, and, you know, so you understand why, um, how important I think this will be in terms of a living archive, you yeah. know, um, what, I think what it inevitably does is saying we refuse to be a race, and you got to hear our voices if you can hear, yeah. um, and we won't be we won't be silenced, and that that inevitably will, what it, inevitably what it tries to do. And you bring in, I mean, you said it, but you bring in so many incredible creators, black, queer, male identifying, masculine people, and it it is sort of a reminder to the listener of like, damn, black queer men. And masculine (laughs) folks are, they're doing it. Like y'all are like leaders so much in, in a space that I I think you're right. Like 
there's an a, an erasure and then your podcast is a reminder. I mean, even as someone myself who I feel that I'm obviously very aware of blackness, like I am black and I'm aware of artists and creatives and all that stuff. Like they're, the first episode like you said, has Lee Daniels, it has Michael R. Jackson, it has Wesley Morris, who's like one of my heroes and I'm obsessed with. Um, <laughs> and so it, it's, and it's so beautiful. The listening experience is so beautiful. It's like a, it like washes over you. It feels so full and complete. And it is a little different than a lot mm-hmm. of most podcasts out there. It, it's a little, I don't know, highbrow, if you will, you know, like it's kind of like, it's kind of fancy in a way that is really enjoyable and cool. And I don't mean highbrow as like, it's not, it's not enjoyable or like that it's like snotty, but it, it, there is a level of artistry. Yeah. My partner would say it's considered. That's that's brilliant. I'm going to steal that. It's totally considered. So yes, people should definitely check it out. It is so, so good. I'm going to ask you one more question. Then we're going to take a quick break and then I'm going to try to ask you all my other questions later. But here's my question. In this time of COVID, a, a re media attention onto racism and race or refocusing Uh-oh. by by white the white lens on racism let's put it that way a we're post-election but still you know the current president has decided that he's gonna fly people from michigan to come visit him and you know we're just in a fucking time we're all having a fucking time however your skin your outfit <laughs> Your hair, the photo that you sent me to be your picture on Instagram for this episode is just so beautiful and so just well done and clean and full of light (laughs) and love. And so I'm really, I need to know what kind of fucking self-care you're practicing because this is bullshit, okay? I'm over here. I have pimples all over my face. I like, I'm breastfeeding these children. I have short hair growing in. I can't, my light is shit. Like I look like actual dog shit and you're just always thriving every time I see you everywhere. So I need to know what you're doing. I'm laughing so hard. I'm laughing so hard. But, you know, it's a combination. Look, I have good lighting. You Thank do. goodness for Harley and company. They sent me really, really good lighting. <laughs> um, so I have that. Um, but you know what? Like, I... Look, we are in a storm within a storm. And, it, and I, have, I, have, I feel it. I feel the weight of that. I, I actually feel so much lighter knowing that 45 is exiting the White House. Ugh. Um it's making me feel much lighter. Doesn't mean we don't have work to do with the new incoming folk. We do. Um, but a big part of it is like black people, we we know what it feels like to grow up under the conditions of lovelessness. So like, I mean, this is like in so many ways, Trump is new and isn't. Right. Right. Um, Trumpism is new and isn't. We know something about living within a furnace. <laughs> mm-hmm. All right. Um, and uh, I, I think what we also know, like I think about my family, you know, we're in Camden. We may not have a lot of money to pay for a lot of shit. We may not even be paying rent on time, but we were dancing. We made space for community. We made space for love. And a big part of what I've been harnessing in this moment is like, I enjoy, I've been, I've been spending a pandemic with my partner, partner, Yashua Simmons. And like, um, just sitting down at the end of the day and being like, you know what? we're going to sit on this fucking deck and we're going to look at these mountains and drink our wine or our good whiskey 
and just love on one another and be present. Or I'm like in a chat box with my sisters and my mom and we're, we're enjoying each other's company. Um, there is a way as Black folk, as, as folk who exist on the underside of power, we have figured out how to dance in the midst of the furnace, you know, not to be churchy. I told you I was a a recovering (laughs) church boy, but I'm going to go here. I'm going to go here. Just roll with me with the metaphor. But, you know, and, and, and y'all, and forgive me for my, for my atheist. I'm not pushing this on you. Just hear me out. In the Bible, there's a story about these three, um, what they're called in the Bible, Hebrew boys who are put in a fiery furnace by the King Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar is like, you know, an emperor, right? Like he's in charge of the empires. Then roll with the metaphor, (laughs) y'all. And Nebuchadnezzar gets upset at the faith of these three young Hebrew boys and places them in a fiery furnace. And this motherfucker walks away saying, yeah, I done did this thing. I done got rid of them. <laughs> and and they're like, actually, turn around and look. And Nebuchadnezzar looks and they're standing in the fire and they're unfucking singed. Mm. And not only are the three of them in the fire unsinged, but Nebuchadnezzar sees a fourth liking of a of a person in there that that the Bible says is like the Son of Man, which might be understood as like um, God Spirit. And I, you know, I had a friend, Kevin Taylor, Reverend Kevin Taylor, black queer pastor, who once said, "If that ain't a reference to your book, right? Like, think about your book." And so the, the the title of the book, No Ash in the Fire, really also has some, it is not just about me surviving a literal moment where I was about to be set ablaze. It's about Black people mm-hmm. who have somehow figured out, and this is not to say that we are, look, part of our work is to say, we ain't comfortable in this shit. Mm-hmm. We, we're going to call this out. You, we know that the furnace, that the furnace exists. White supremacists, heteropatriarchal capitalism, as Bell Hooks would say, we exist in that shit. Mm-hmm. And- and this shit is not going to take us the fuck out. We are going to survive. Some of us don't, though. Right. Some of us don't. So what I guess I'm trying to say is in a moment like this, for people who have figured out how to survive, pulled from our love, pulled from um, the, the the sort of resources present within our own communities to, to support one another, we know how to make good. We know how to keep our skin clean and shining. Mm-hmm. We know how to keep and get that beard all loot, you know? Mm-hmm. I'm like, I'm going to put this good, colorful sweater on in spite of of the darkness that may exist in the world. And that's part of being our survival mechanism. So that's how I do that. I just, I wake up every day and even I don't go to the office anymore. I go literally to the computer in my next room and my partner laughing because I get fully dressed. Mm. I put on cologne. <laughs> I wash my beard. I blow dry that shit out. I'm cleaning my face. I put eye, like little eye puffs, oh d- whatever gosh. they call that shit. They get the, look, <laughs> I do all of that to, to go to the other room. But because you. we deserve to give ourselves that love, that care, right? Um, even in a moment like this. Ugh, I'm so jealous of that. I wish that I... <laughs> I mean... I, listen, Tracy, I also don't have kids. Because if yeah. I had kids, I would not... Let me tell you what, what yeah. we're going to be looking like. Yeah, be, like, I, um, I give myself a pass on getting showered and cleaned every day because <laughs> I have... 10, 11-month-old twins. So I am in the fire. <laughs> I'm dancing sometimes, but I am also hot. (laughs) I get it. I get it. Okay, we're going to take a quick break and then we're going to be right back. Taking care of your health isn't always easy, but it should be at least simple. That's why for the last three plus years, I have been drinking AG1 every day, no exceptions. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day, and it makes me feel nourished and strong enough to tackle whatever else might come my way. 
That's because each serving of AG1 delivers my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and a lot more. It's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. The nutritional insurance that AG1 provides has been vital to keeping me productive and focused. It helps me cover my bases in just about the time it takes to fill a glass of water, scoop in one scoop of AG1, and then drink it. So I don't know, 75 seconds? With the perfect mix of vitamins, probiotics, and nutrients from Whole Foods, I'm not stuck trying to assemble it all by myself, which would have considerably worse results. AG1 saves me all the time and hassle, and it has made such a difference in my overall mood and especially my gut health, among many other things. But don't take my word for it. Go ahead and try AG1. Let me know what you think. Whether you notice you're needing more nutrient support than you're used to, or you just need an edge for a tough workout, AG1 can be the ticket. If there's one product I had to recommend to elevate your health, it's AG1, and that's why I've partnered with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, start with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3, K2, and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash the stacks. That's drinkag1.com slash the stacks. Check it out. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Okay, everybody, we're back. Um, I did not prep you for this. This is the one thing I don't prep my guests for. It's called Ask the Stacks. And someone has written in an email asking for a book recommendation. So I'm going to read you the email and then we're both going to give them recommendations based on their interests. Okay. Perfect. This comes from Colton C. Colton says, I'm looking for something plot driven, a book that makes me want to stay up late into the night because I can't wait to see what happens in the next chapter. Books that are character driven are amazing, but I just can't seem to get into them. Books I truly enjoyed are The Great Believers by Rebecca Mackay and Sula by Toni Morrison. Also, mm. I'm not opposed to nonfiction. It, it makes me want to continue reading because I need to know what happens next. Nonfiction I've enjoyed is Five Days at Memorial by Sherry Fink and Dope Sick by Beth Macy. Okay, Colton, I'm going to go first. I'm going to give you three and then we'll let Darnell give you at least one, but you can do multiple. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. Okay. Okay. You can just do one. Don't feel too much pressure. Okay. I just like to okay. show off. You know, it's my podcast. I'm going to flex <laughs> a little bit. Uh, <laughs> okay, so my first recommendation, Colton, is a book that I have loved since the first time I read it in 2010, I believe, when it came out, or 2009. It's called Columbine. It's by Dave Cullen. It's about the school shooting at Columbine in 1999. Um, it is investigative journalism. It is, you're not going to be able to put it down. It's so emotional. It's so incredible. I've yet to recommend it to someone 
who has not loved it, aside from, of course, some trigger warning stuff around, you know, school shootings, mass violence, et cetera. Um, my second pick for you is young adult because that's a thing that I'm into now. It's called Monday's Not Coming. It's by Tiffany Jackson. It's so good. I just read it this year and I, I don't want to tell you too much about it, but it's about a young girl whose friend does not show up for school. And that's all I'll say. And it's incredible. And then my third one is another novel because I'm trying to be respectful of your interest in fiction, which is There, There by Tommy Orange. It's a book mm. told in multi by multiple characters. There's a lot going on, but it centers around a upcoming powwow in Oakland, California. Whoop, whoop. Um, and I also don't want to give too much away around this one, but there's a lot of stories. There's a lot going on. There's a lot of plot. Um, there are a lot of characters, so I do recommend paying close attention as the characters are introduced in the beginning. Um, I actually wrote out a little character tree when I read the book because someone told me that it was a little confusing. Um, but it's such good writing and it's really exciting and it has great payoff. Um, so those are my recommendations, Darnell. Oh, those are good. Um, Jamel Brinkley's A Lucky Man comes to mind. Mm. It was published in 2018, was a finalist um, for the National Book Award for Fiction and is um, a composition of nine short stories that really explores uh, relationships between fathers and sons and and sons and sons and, and, and black men and their friends within a New York, within New York. Um, I was really moved by the book and uh, yeah, I would give that one. Okay. Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. Colton, if you read any of our suggestions, please let me know, let us know. Also for those of you who want recommendations for yourself, read on the air, email askingthestacks at gmail.com. Okay, now we're going to talk books. So excited. All right, Darnell, so we always start here. Two books you love, one book you hate. Um, okay, let's start with the books that I love. This is, and it's so hard. I know. Because like, how do I pick? Two books you love today. Two books I love today. Okay, okay, okay. I think I can do this. <laughs> what am I looking at right now? You should see the books around me right now. Um, I just finished Stakes is High by Michael Denzel Smith. So I should offer this. I mean, Michael is also my brother. <laughs> but I'm not saying this because he's my brother, um, but because he's been a writer that I followed for probably a decade now. And who has, in this most recent book, um, has really demonstrated his mastery of really honing in on the moment to offer... Um, the most beautiful cultural criticism, social history um, in a way that is so narratively driven and also vulnerable. Um, he, he finds himself in his words and, and self-reckoned. So I love Stakes is High. Um, it just won the Kirkus Prize. So kudos to him. Um, and, 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 okay. Okay. What else? What else? What else? What else? Um, uh, okay. This is going to you know what? One of the books that I, I feel like I should talk more about is Amani Perry's Breathe. Ugh, we did that on the podcast with Kiese. <laughs> okay, good. So everyone listening, you know how great Yo, it is. I read that book. I think I might have read it in a sitting. Um, it's a short book. It's a short book, but it is not minimal in terms of its impact or in terms of the stylistic mm -hmm. um, way in which Amani drives home using epistolatory form, which is often employed by like black male writers and sort of upheld as a thing. Um, but here is a mama writing to her sons as opposed to say Coates, 
um, who might be writing to a son in between the world. You know, like that. He, I love that this is a black woman doing this writing. Um, the book is so rich. It is. It is so deeply, deeply emotive. Um, it's evocative. It's honest, and it's penchant in terms of its critique and that it that it's offering. Um, in, in terms of so the American empire and and race making in terms of that. And it's just beautiful. It's a book that you don't have to have a son to read. Um, it's a book that um, I think anyone can find themselves in. So those are two books that I love. Um, one book that I hate. Damn it. I have never been asked that question before. Really? No. Are you one of those people um, who doesn't like to say that you hate a book because you respect no, authors? No, I can say it. Okay. I'm just, I'm trying to figure <laughs> I do respect authors. Sure, me too. But I also hate so many books. <laughs> I'm trying to. Okay, so here, this is a book. I don't hate is strong. Okay, y'all. So I loved Giovanni's Room. Okay, because of how beautifully written it was, and and there was a way that Baldwin wrote so fantastically um, about these characters, non-black characters, <laughs> um, in this way, he gave these characters lives that are like queer. It's about love. It's about all these things. I hate it. I hate it that the entry point into my coming into a world where queerness will not only be sort of, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Typified as a, uh, a site of denial or violent or whatever, and also white. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I hate it that Baldwin used his gift to give me that book. <laughs> I'm like, oh my God, can I get like a love couple? Like, right. give me two men in Harlem. Right. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, take me to 135th and Lennox. Like, right. So I, I have a love hate. I, that's that would be probably the closest book because I, the beauty of writing is beautiful. But I'm also like I feel like I missed, which is why when people you know are talking to me now because I love Baldwin. I love Baldwin. Fine, but when it comes to sort of black, and maybe that wasn't his work, but you gave me Giovanni's room, so shit, you could have at least given me like I don't know Ahmad's room or some shit. I don't know. But um, <laughs> sorry. So I I am more inclined to have found what I was looking for in Giovanni's room in the works of, uh, in the poetry of Essex Hemphill and um, the, the the gritty black loving and, and, and also the works of nonfiction works of people like um, Joseph B. So I think that's okay. what I'll share. That's a lot. Uh, we Is actually also did Giovanni's room on the podcast. It was the third <laughs> book we ever did on the show when the show was like a brand new infant baby. So, but, okay. but yeah, I'm going to get hate mail. I'm sorry. No, y'all. you're not. Oh my gosh, please. I, listen, if, if anything, I talk so much shit about so many books on this show that people love. Like I talk shit about books and then I go turn around and have the author on the podcast because I really like the author, but I had a lot of problems <laughs> with the book. Like, I don't know. I think it's okay. Like, yeah, I think it's okay it's to fine. talk critically about things. I, I don't, do too. yeah, I don't just say like, this book is shit and the author's a moron. Like, that's not okay. It's also very mean, but like, that's yeah. a valid criticism. For sure. Absolutely. And criticism, criticism can be love. Yeah, exactly. What are you reading right now? Um, I am finishing up Sadia Hartman's um, newest book. Let me make sure I get the, the title right because I want to make sure y'all actually read this one. And I will put links um, to everything in the show notes too. Oh, okay, so perfect, people will perfect, be able perfect. to find it and go get it. The actual title is Wayward Lives, Beautiful Experiments, Intimate Histories of Riotous Black Girls, Troublesome Women, and Queer Radicals. And the book itself um, 
is true. Sadia Hartman is a scholar. And and what is this? I think she, what does he call it? Critical fabulation. I want to say that's a term she sort of brings up and employs. Um, and why y'all, y'all should see me. Y'all would let it is. That's right. I got that part right. <laughs> so the book, while it may, um, the, it may be sort of understood as like a, a academic text, right? Like the book y'all is such a divine piece of writing. Mm. Um, Hartman has spent time in the archives and piecing together the lives of these riotous women, these queer radical women in Philadelphia um, in a, in like in this very particular time in history and also trying to bring to the surface um, given what that their absences in the archive, imagining into being what their life worlds were like. And y'all, the book is so beautiful, just as a writer. Like when I have to write, I typically will go to that book and just start reading her writing because I'm like, how the hell? Like it's it's like poetic. Um, it is evocative. Um, the things that she's able to do in terms of the, like she's mixing genres and the literary devices she's using are so gorgeous. Mm. It's everything. I'm just telling y'all that. Y'all go get that book. I've heard it's so good. I have not read it yet. You're making me just want to drop everything. It's so fucking good. Ugh. It's so good. Seriously. Okay, 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 okay. I'm going to read it. I'm going to read it. Um, okay, <laughs> what's a book that you love to recommend to other people? Like your go-to recommendation? Um, my, one of my go-to recommendations, and this is easy for me, is Heavy by Kiese Lehman. I don't know. We talk about this book all the time, but it deserves its praise. So good. Um, and one of the reasons why, beyond the fact that Kiese is uh, a really gifted writer, a really gifted writer. And here's the thing that I don't know if we talk about enough. Here in the works of Kiese, I off, um, and I, I say this about Michael Denzel Smith's work. I say this about Marlon Peterson's work, who I had a fortune of reading before it's published, right? Um, here are writers who do something I don't know if we've seen in, in the memoir, and that is self-reckon. Mm. And that... You know, in in ways that memoirists are are often probably troubled with writing ourselves in the book as either heroes or victims, particularly black men. Um, here is a work of someone who is laying themselves bare as an object of critique, right? As an object of study, and I think that that is actually very different than a lot of the works we've seen. Um, and in this moment, particularly because I've been doing, a, I'm writing a second book, right, on black man, on manhood and masculinities, and um, I am doing a lot of talk with this podcast on like black men. When I when I think about examples of on the page of of self of, of transformative work, that gets closest to that for me, and it's one of the ones I tend to recommend in this particular moment because of that reason. Right. When is your new book coming? And what is it well, called? You know, that, that, that's always the questions you oh. ask the writers. That, that, that just made my, well, it should be done by now. Oh, well, I wasn't sure if it like, <laughs> was you know, already had like a pub date or if it's like a few years down the road. We, we're, it's likely a, a year, a few years down the road. Okay. It's tentatively titled Unbecoming, Visions Beyond the Limits of Manhood. 
That's a tentative title. That may change, y'all. Unbecoming. But. Watch out, Michelle. It's over for you, girl. <laughs> well, you know, a big part of that is, you know, I had a chapter in my in the memoir that was called Unbecoming. And in short, what, what the lesson behind that was, you know, my freedom didn't come from becoming mm-hmm. a man. It came from me unbecoming or in learning what unlearning what um, what a man was supposed. It really, really look to put it in layman's terms. When I gave my middle finger to notions of manhood that were pinned on me, that caged me, is the moment that I felt free. So this book is meant to be sort of creative nonfiction uh, that that tests the validity of that claim. Um, I don't know if if the goal is for us to become better men. I think the goal is for us to not become at all. Fuck it. Right. I can't wait. I can't wait. Okay. Okay. Gotta, I'm excited to read it already, but no pressure. You just take your time. You make it perfect. <laughs> and then I will read it when you're ready for us to read it. All right. Do you have any like goals or things that you set up around your reading life? Yeah, I do. Um, I, I tend to read multiple books at once. That's that's just how my brain works. Um, so um, I have um, Sadia's book along with Saeed Ashton's book, um, Queer Palestine, um, that I'm reading. And part of what I try to do, I try to sort of pair, um, and I don't do this enough, but I try to sort of mix genres and, and try to read them at the same time. Um, so Saeed is a cultural anthropologist. I'm reading Sadia's book, which is sort of like this um, amazing sort of a historical lens and look back at the lives of these, these riotous Black women um, and then we'll try to pair that with, say, like a fictional work, which I haven't gotten to yet, and try to read them all at once. Okay, that's very cool. Are you are you a person who organizes your books? And if so, how? <laughs> um, so right now, literally, I'm in the quasi office slash second bedroom in our home. And next to me, the books that are that I love are always at the top of the list. Um, so like right now I'm looking at Barracoon by Zora Neale Hurston. I'm looking at The Origins of Others by Toni Morrison, How to Slowly Get Away with Murder um, by Kiese. I'm looking at um, Coates' Between the World and Me, um, Educated by Tara Westover. So I like have those books at the top. Um, and then the books that are just like, meh, are they like at the bottom? <laughs> so that's how I organize. I love that. And <laughs> you're in LA, right? Yes. Any favorite bookstores here in LA? That's a good question. So I moved here right before, like, I got here in October, didn't really travel much, and then COVID COVID happened. So I've not been able to be out in the world. I will say that the places that I went to buy books when I was moving around was surprisingly the Underground Museum, which is an amazing museum, y'all. I love the Underground and they carried my book and so many other um, black artists' work that was just that that was phenomenal to me. So that's okay. where I would go. Okay, amazing. I'm in LA too. I don't know if we've talked about this, but we'll, oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we'll have to oh, talk shit. offline oh, about where ooh, we are. Uh, <laughs> okay, what is the last book that made you laugh? Oh, the last book that made me. That's a good question. Oh, Tracy, you good? Damn it. <laughs> You can also say skip if any of them you're like, I don't know. No, no, no. It's fine. Like I have, I'm borrowing a copy of, you may not think this is a book. It's not humorous book, but um, June Jordan has a way. (laughs) June, I love, so June Jordan is like one of the ancestors that I feel like has been a spirit guide to me. So I have a cop, I have a copy of her Civil Wars um, that I borrowed from my mentor, Belle Satter. 
And for some reason, like June has a acerbic, like she just doesn't, she doesn't, she just cuts to the chase and right. gives it like it is. Right. I find myself laughing a lot when I read um, June's words, not because it is meant to be humorous sometimes, but because of just the way she doesn't give a fuck. She's just mm. like, here's what it is and you're going to take it. Yeah. So that's the point. I love that. You all can't see, but I'm holding it up. Okay. What's the last book that made you angry? Oh, okay. So um, I'm, well, we're going to talk about this. Um, more, but Citizen because I re- I was rereading it for our um for our conversation, yeah. and I was just rereading it again like now. So I re- I did I read I hadn't read it during the sort of storm within a storm that went now. Right, you know I read right. it when it first came out. I was reading that shit now. I was like, oh hell, because you know the begin. I don't want to go too deep. We into won't it, go into it. Be- we'll just say Citizen. Okay, okay. It's gonna make you okay. angry. We'll talk. Yes. We'll talk more. Okay. Um, but I also actually agree with what you're getting ready to say, I think. But we'll skip it. We'll save it. We'll save it. We'll save it. Um, okay. What about a book or one of the last books that you read that you felt like you just learned a lot? Mm, I have one that I just picked up. Um, I don't know if you all know The Short and Tragic Life of Robert Peace. I do know that I've not read it, though. I have it. I own uh, it. Uh, a brilliant young man who left Newark for the Ivy League. Now, I have some things to say about the book, right? Okay. But, like, um, I always love reading books that that are based in the settings of places in which I grew up and thought I knew. Mm-hmm. So, I, you know, I spent a big portion of my 20s in Newark, um, but reading this book through the eyes of the writer Jeff, through the eyes of um, Robert Peace, who lost his life, was actually quite eye-opening. Okay. Is there a book that you've read that you feel proud to have read? Yes. So, you know, Tracy probably knows this because this was the book I was going to pick, but um, I, I have an alt. Zami by Audre Lorde is one of my all time favorite books. Um, and it's so underappreciated. It is so um, under celebrated, but I feel like I am a better person for having read it. Like the type of work she does in that book. It's unlike shit that I see even to this day. And I, I feel like I, I only aspire to be um, as poetic and as brilliant she was in that piece of work. That was some right. That was some beautiful ass writing. I've never read it. I, I have to read it. It's, it's actually amazing. Okay. 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 I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. You're making my <laughs> TBR list go out of control as if it's not already uh, just thousands of books, but it's fine. I'll get to it. What? Is a book that you're embarrassed that you've never read? Oh, okay. So I've not, I got it right here. I've not yet finished. You know, you're supposed to read all the Toni Morrison's books. Oh, please. I've only read three. But what's the book that, oh, it's right over here. There's one of the Toni Morrison books that I have yet to even open. And it is um, A Mercy. Okay. Yeah, I've not read it. I'm working my way through slowly, I guess. I don't know. I try to, but it's like, it's, I, yeah, it's harder to get into. That's fair. All right. You work with young people. So I'm very curious your answer to this. What would be a book that you would assign if you were teaching high school students? Mm, anything by Jason Reynolds. Uh, good. We got it. We got a Jason Reynolds mention in on the podcast this week. Everyone check your bingo card. Yes. Jason is the patron saint slash mascot slash show crush. Um, so... <laughs> We everything he writes is just look both ways makes me cry every time I think about it. Yep, I, I sent um what is what did um like I would send his books to my nephew who didn't really like to read, and now he likes to read. He read that one. Mm. I sent him Ghost. Uh, okay, I'm not gonna fangirl too hard right now. I'm gonna try to keep it together. Uh, 
<laughs> if someone, if you were going to let someone else write the book of your life, who would you pick? That's so freaking good um, and hard. But maybe Danette Smith, the poet. Last one. I stole this one from the New York Times by the book. If you could require the current president of the United States to read one book, what would it be? Oh, shit. The current one? And that's in the office right now? The one that is in office currently as of recording at the end of 2020. Well, he doesn't read, so I don't even know. Like, Let me think about this. I would require him to read. Mm -mm -mm. That is so hard. Damn it. Is there a book that, like, Satan wrote? Like, is it? Let me think about Satan. (laughs) Who gets closest to (laughs) Satan? I'm so serious because it's like, I don't even know. I mean, maybe he can read like Robin D'Angelo. I don't know. Like, um... oh, no shade. I'm not. No, that's no shade. <laughs> that was a shade. I'm saying because I only want white people to talk to him. White oh, okay. people got need it, to it, gather it. him. Got it. Got it. Got so, it. Got it. Yeah. I don't want to put that label. No black writer. But I would love for him to read Robin D'Angelo's book. Got it. Okay. Brilliant. Uh, white, white fragility. Brilliant, brilliant. But you're not calling her <laughs> Satan. I think that was the confusion. No, no, no. Robin, Robin, I'm not calling you Satan. No. Okay. No. Everyone, this is the wonderful, brilliant, just the greatest Darnell Moore. He's going to be back at the end of December. We're talking about Citizen by Claudia Rankin. Darnell, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. This was an honor. This is so great. And everyone else, we will see you in the stack. Thank you, thank you, thank you to Darnell for being my guest. Thank you also to Tamara Lewis for helping schedule this interview. Darnell will be back on December 30th to discuss Citizen by Claudia Rankin for the Stacks Book Club. Please make sure you're subscribed to the Stacks wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're listening through Apple Podcasts, please take a moment to rate and review the show. For more from the Stacks, follow us on social media at the Stacks Pod on Instagram, at the Stacks Pod underscore on Twitter, and check out our website, thestackspodcast.com. Today's episode was edited and produced by Sebastian Alcala. Our graphic designer is Robin McCrite, and our theme music is from Tagirajis. The Stacks is created and produced by me, Tracy Thomas. <laughs> 